0: I'll start with a poem by Csikla Miloš. He returns years later, has no demands. He wants only one most precious thing, to see purely and simply without name, without expectations, fears, or hopes, at the edge where there is no I or not I. A couple of days ago I was walking around the neighborhood near Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, which many of you are familiar with, a place I've been connected with for many years. I lived there when it first opened for a few, about six months, and there used to be this kind of dusty old place that seemed to be selling cactuses but was never open. Some of you remember that place. It never seemed to... It was just full of cactuses and dust. And Now it must not be a very high rent because there's an artist who's taken it over and the windows uh, are now full of her drawings and collages and kind of interesting line drawn portraits of people. And one of the windows had a kind of a mosaic of little drawings and little phrases And there were two that caught my attention. One of them was a question from the artist to the viewer, like, how do you feel? So I ask you, how do you feel now? And another one of the little tiles or pieces of paper said, why does it matter? (laughs) And I don't actually know that the two of them were related in the... (laughs) No, whether why does it matter could have been a question about anything else, but for the talk, or for the beginning of this talk, yes. How do we feel and does it matter to us how we feel? I think it does. It matters to us tremendously. Why? I'm not certain, but it seems to be part of our nature to have a kind of compassion and to be able to see differences and recognize when we have well-being and when we don't. The Dalai Lama says, he agrees with this, he says we care about ourselves very deeply and our own welfare and happiness are the basis from which we can extend caring to those around us. It's rooted in our biological being. You may have heard him say this, if you've heard him speak at all, he often talks about how much we depend on the care of a mother and father to keep us alive when we're tiny. That our birth and our survival don't depend on us, ourselves, but on a tremendous degree of care, which hasn't been perfect in most of our cases, but was enough to bring us here to that we have life up until now. His Holiness also says happiness is the purpose of life, which sounds almost self-indulgent. But I think happiness is not just something silly, it's uh, to have some quality of meaning in our happiness is important to all of us, it's certainly important to us here. And the happiness and meaningfulness is something not just about ourselves but also for others and the way we feel we fit into life or participate in life. It needs to have some kind of meaning to be really satisfying. Not just pleasure after pleasure, since that doesn't work anyway. After the chanting last night, Guy made this little remark when, I don't know, some of you who were here, we were sharing the blessings of our life with all beings and it was really very uplifting and he was remarking on how good it is to do this and how good it feels. And then he said, it's better to go to bed with this than with Beyonce or Mick Jagger. <laughs> and my own mind immediately had an inappropriate thought about... <laughs> Maybe it would be more fun to go to bed with Beyonce or Mick Jagger, but they're not here. (laughs) And then the next thought is kind of like, I don't know if I really would want to. Like, it would be kind of complicated (laughs) since I'm married and everything. (laughs) And I love my husband, and I don't actually often have those kinds of feelings and thoughts. (laughs) It's just on retreat. (laughs) You know, we've been here for a couple of days and the mind gets going and sticking with it through stuff. You might have seen your own mind doing some crazy things. I remember I was teaching a retreat in Mexico one time and there was this woman whose name I won't mention because I would like to post this talk online. And she came on the second day like this and she said, you know, I realized I'm so worried about my little dog at home. And I'm like, yes. I can imagine that. And she said, and I don't even have a dog. <laughs> and I thought, like, uh-oh, what am I going to do with this?" <laughs> but she was also recognizing, you know, how, like, nutty we can become. <laughs> so I don't know if you noticed today, like, if you had any times when it felt like there was travail, you know, in your experience, whether you're Heart and mind cared, you know, about how you feel. I think, yes, we're kind of biased in that sense. And we also know that the ways that we want to be happy are elusive, and sometimes pursuing happiness makes it, gets it even farther away. The ways that we try to be happy make things worse for us. That was part of what the Buddha was compassionate to us about is how much we want to be happy and how we end up doing stuff that makes us not so happy and we don't really even get it, why it keeps happening like that. This morning I was speaking with one of the working guests and he reminded me of um, the words of Oscar Wilde. There are two great tragedies in life, getting what you want and not getting it. Of the two, getting what you want is the greater tragedy. So we started discussing why that was. And we had two different answers. So I wonder what you think is the answer of why is it worse to get what you want. I mean, Oscar Wilde was a humorist, so he's being a little sarcastic here, but also wise. um, I thought it was because getting what you want, you realize it isn't really what you want. So it's kind of more hollow. And my friend thought that it's because you keep running after getting again and again. You don't stop trying to get stuff due to you keep cultivating all this wanting something from outside that can never be satisfied, never gets what it wants and keeps looking out there for something to fill the lack or make us better or you know the more we look out there to make something better in us the more we kind of confirm that something like that is needed to fill in like that extra little hollow puzzle piece of lack in us. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of England said recently in an interview, sometimes we need to stop and just let happiness catch up with us, which is the theory behind the Jewish Shabbat. And also these kinds of retreats where we're at least slowing down maybe stopping, some of us. So kind of what we're doing here, is seeing if the happiness can catch up with us. But we can also see that just by stopping our outer activities, there's a certain degree of calm, but that allows us to see, again, how our mind just keeps on swirling. So learning how to stop, um, and what to stop, and what to keep going with, is a matter of great sort of discrimination and... Wisdom, really, insight, wisdom, what to do and not do, what to adopt and what to drop. Krishnamurti said, beauty is there for you to see if you have the mind and heart to look, not outside of the beauty of the cloud or the tree or the water, the beauty of the thing, but in yourself. In oneself lies the whole world, and if you know how to look and learn, then the door is there and the key is in your hand. So it's not really about the Buddha's enlightenment and freedom, it's about your own enlightenment and freedom inside. But as it often is with Krishnamurti when he says, if you know how to look, then the door is there and the key is there, but I think we might wish that we knew and feel some deep resonance with those words, and yet we don't see the key and the door in ourselves. Which is why some of the detailed instructions of the Buddha seem so merciful. Real instruction on how to train our minds, Um, you know, the notions of using an anchor and having personal instruction and looking at different aspects of experience, which is what I'm going to go into a little in the talk. Being able to kind of have a training regime for the mind, like the idea that human beings create a certain amount of suffering for ourselves is just the standard. It's what we come with. There's no blame in that. There's no censure in it. We all do it. We're all born with this kind of faulty wiring. It's a very profound situation that we face here. And caring about ourselves sort of extremely much, we come here to try to pick apart and dismantle the way that we keep rebuilding suffering for ourselves again and again. And the Buddha's sense of it was, you know, why does it matter? He also really cared about the human experience of suffering. Very practical, almost radically practical in his teaching. Very often he would be met with people who have theoretical questions who would come to him with very abstruse or philosophical questions like, you know, if you're a Buddha and you're not going to be reborn anymore, where will you go after you die? Will you still exist, or will you not? Or, you know, will you sort of exist and sort of not? Or something like that. And he would often seemingly dismiss them with a little bit of impatience. Or they would, even the question, do I have a self or not, he once dismissed by saying, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So it's really so much pointing to the compassion of that. The other thing that I want to point out here is that suffering wouldn't matter if we weren't experiencing being, if we weren't experiencers, if we weren't conscious, right? Like if we were just inert or something, then it wouldn't matter whether we suffered or not. So even in that talking about suffering and the end of suffering, which are curiously mentioned as being one thing, which I think is also very peculiar, a little bit like a riddle, um, which we'll give you the answer to in about one second. Suffering and the end of suffering happen in one place. And that's a big deal where he's pointing to the experientialness or the subjectivity or the experiencingness of our life, which is fundamental. It's like our life blood, this awareness or consciousness. Larry Rosenberg, the teacher of CIMC, um, typical pithy Larry, where is peace to be found? In the same place as sorrow. How convenient. (laughs) (laughs) So Krishnamurti is saying, you know, if you have the mind and heart to look, Buddha is saying that also. It sounds a little trivial in a sense, but it has to do with how much we overlook things that are important, like in favor of things that are urgent or things that feel like they need to be done. So this quality of awareness or consciousness, if we didn't feel anything, it wouldn't matter if we suffered or not. So when we're pointing directly into the experientialness of our life here and attempting to really connect with that, often teachers will call it the heart because it's so central. Because consciousness is so central, awareness is so intrinsic to us. I could almost stop the talk just with this, with sort of opening the heart to the heart of itself. I'll talk a little more though, since I have lots of time and you guys don't have anything better to do. (laughs) So one of the meanings of vinyana, or consciousness, um, one of the implicit meanings of it, is that it's discerning, it's able to discern. So in the consciousness that you have now, you can see a lot of details all around you, like the colors and shapes and stuff, and consciousness can take all of those very differentiated forms and take them all in and see them uh, almost quasi all at once. So you can be hearing and seeing and feeling kind of a lot of complicated things, all through the ability of experience to see and know these things by our nature or by the nature of consciousness. It can see all this. So how do you feel? Or what do you see? Or what are you experiencing? It's extremely immediate. In fact, we're absorbed in it completely all the time. You know, we're completely, like, in this experience of experiencing lots of different stuff so when you're in conflict what you're absorbed in is a sense of conflict or resistance or not liking it or something not being enough or not being good enough we very often don't see that that's kind of coming from our mental conditioning or conditions the setup to say it's not good enough for me like there's going to be something else I wait for another joke in the talk or something. I don't know if this is a boring part. Or, sometimes when we're not in conflict, then our consciousness can know that too. And that is also a big deal about the end of suffering being able to happen right in our experience here. Here and now, actually being the only place, like when the Buddha always says, that put an end to suffering here and now. It sounds so intense. And yet the only place that could happen is here and now, not in an afterlife, not for someone else. It's for each of us. And we can feel it here, not being in conflict with our experience. Some of us have tasted it just during the day. Say if you're noticing your breath and feeling your breath and some other object arises and the attention gets drawn to that, instead of feeling disappointment and blame coming up, all of a sudden the mind is just aware of what that next thing is and it's clear. And sometimes you can feel like, oh my God, this is great. Like I just went from one thing to another and there's just mindfulness of both. And instead of the blame that I normally feel, I just feel like here I am with the sensation or here I am with the thought and it's okay. Like the power of mindfulness just moves from one experience to the other. That was in the Q&A this morning when someone was talking about feeling like they had to stay with the breath. It's like, no, it's actually okay. Just move to the next thing and be aware of that and then you're fine. No problem. Great. And that's how it is because we don't necessarily stay with the breath. And the insight into all this variety of how our experience can show up comes from being able to allow different things in, allow experience to unfold in all of its variety and color and be there for it. And then without having a problem with it, then there isn't so much suffering, so much struggle. Or just the sense of being able to soften into what's happening. Like, it feels like you're experiencing something kind of in a rigid way. And then just the invitation to soften and say, like, I can be with this, I can be with what is you immediately feel a sense of, oh, what a relief, I don't have to be better than this, I don't have to go anywhere, I can just be with this experience. That's the cessation of suffering. It's a cessation of suffering here and now in one's own experience. Why we recommend bringing our loving awareness again and again to whatever is actually happening right now. It doesn't matter what it is that's happening, it's how are we in relationship to it? And it's strange that that's something hard for us to learn, that we think something has to be happening in a certain way for us to be happy. That's kind of this belief that's in there that but we don't have to stay with that. We can be trained, uh, trainable, trainable with gentleness. I've been reading a book about a man who goes for a long walk with a donkey, and he's talking a lot about donkeys and donkey training and how stubborn they are and really respecting how much donkeys have evolved you know for many years I don't know how many years they've been around on the planet but they evolved by really wanting to be safe all the time so they don't like new things they don't like going under a little row of fluttering flags or if the ground is too wet they're not sure of it so you have to be very patient with them you know and let them sometimes solve their own problem or find their own way around it and be a little bit more encouraging. You know, there's such a sense of beating donkeys, you know, that's part of our folklore as people, a really big misunderstanding of how to really, you know, behave respectfully with that animal and collaborate. The same thing with our mind, which has quite strong habits and sort of rushes around and wants to do things the same way again and again, and sort of a certain amount of patience for the habits we've elaborated over eons and letting the mind, giving the mind some space to kind of solve its own problem rather than trying to get peaceful right away, which is what we mostly want to do. So it happens that guy in the talk invites us to, invites, to entertain the notion that we're whole and perfect and just as we are. And something in my mind says, oh yeah, that's great, I can just be the way I am. And then it's like, yes, that's right. That's how I'm going to be from now on. And the problem starts up again. I'm going to hold on to this, make it it stay, which it doesn't. So we start building agendas so automatically. Um, Other things that cause us suffering are just, you know, the big things of life, the illness, death, struggle and loss, losses we all face, grief, losing loved ones, losing parts of ourself in a certain way, parts of our life, losing outer circumstances of support. There's a deep concern for all of this in the Buddha's teaching, for the impact on us inwardly. It's not to say that we would never try to you know, make things better outwardly. I remember when reading, you know, having my deep Buddhist beliefs, and then when I remodeled my kitchen and added an extra window into the kitchen so it wasn't dark and like... Filthy with all these mouse holes and smell of mice and everything like that. When I come home from a trip now, I just I look at the light coming in the window and I kind of automatically feel happy. And I was like, wow, I'm surprised that this outer condition could make such a difference. But we shouldn't also be rigid about, you know, we have to just be happy in our mind no matter what's happening, no matter if we're being crushed by circumstances, you know, not to become like some kind of strange nihilist in that sense. But right now we're looking at skillful ways to look inside our mind and work skillfully with how our mind works. So that's in a way why this environment is simplified and safe enough and good enough for us to look at some of the things that come up around the edges of stuff. So this question about how to get away from suffering is as old as humanity itself. Certainly in the Buddha's time people were worried about it and the Buddha was worried about dying and illness. I think as uh, many of you have heard his life story, how he was a prince and he had every advantage of his time, a great education and material comfort. And I believe that it was partly from compassion when he looked outside his own sheltered situation and saw people who were sick and unable to care for themselves that he thought, well, a mere like political solution isn't going to deal with these kind of ultimate questions and that was part of his motivation to figure out how to actually take a deeper kind of responsibility for beings not just in his own sort of area but for everyone to discover a solution for all of us. One time he after his enlightenment he was in a place called the Jedavana, one of the uh, forest groves where he used to do retreats and this very elegant young creature whom Um, was supposed to be called a deva, or a god, someone very luminous and radiant, and you can imagine him as being stylish and beautiful. Um, Whether he was human or above human, I don't know. Our friend, Pascal O'Clair likes to think of him as a kind of puck figure, a kind of uh, very sort of sassy, beautiful character. Uh, Came up to the Buddha and said, well, where can we go to get away from this big problem of birth and death? And basically, where can we go to get away? Something that we all think about. It may have occurred to some of us this very day to get away from our suffering, right? The Buddha, I mean, uh, Rohitasa said, is there a way by traveling to know or see or reach the end of the world where one is not born, grows old and dies? And the Buddha said, no, you know, you can't actually go far away enough to get away from it. And Rohitasa, actually the translation is, he said, that's so awesome. (laughs) You're like, wow, Buddha. You know, he said, because I tried it, he says, like, and that was my same conclusion. And and then he says, in my past life, I had all these psychic powers and I could move really fast through space. Like I could, when I wanted to take a step, I could step from the Eastern Ocean and my foot would already be in the Western Ocean. I could move that fast, like... You could imagine something like um, star trek or something like warp speed he had and um, he could do this and that and move so quickly he said and i tried to find the edge of the universe where you could go where there wasn't any birth old age sickness and death and he said i spent 100 years on the way going as fast as that he said i did stop to eat and drink and piss and shit he says (laughs) and sleep And he said, and still in 100 years I got really far and I died on the way. I just died and then I was reborn here. (laughs) I never got out of it. And that's kind of the way our mind is, you know, that trying to find a way out of it like some other situation. But unfortunately, wherever you go, there you are, right? (laughs) You kind of bring yourself with you so the geographic cure doesn't necessarily work. We could think of it now in terms of space technology rather than someone's psychic powers. The Buddha said, you know, you're right. But then he started being tricky, the Buddha. He said, well, but still you'll always be disappointed unless you get to the end of the world. Like we saw that you can't get to the end of the world, but you do have to get to the end of the world. But I declare, my friend, that it's right here in this fathom-long body endowed with perception and knowing that I declare the world exists the beginning of the world the end of the world and the way that leads to the end of the world those who are at peace know the end of the world and don't wish for this world or any other so the end of the world is right through right through this this experience of body and mind And he speaks of the world of experience, perception, and consciousness. This kind of teaching was repeated many times, and he must have said it so many times that he also gave it to his cousin Ananda to give. Like, sometimes people would come with that kind of question, and he'd say, Ananda, you deal with that. Ananda would also say, the end of the world cannot be reached by traveling. So what is this world? Is This world is our experiential world, like the way that we construct our life. And we're not really aware of traveling around in this big virtual construction most of the time, that our mind makes up a lot of stuff and gives structure to our life. Like We're aware that when we're a baby, we have to figure out which is our hand and which is our foot and how to get stuff into our mouth and stuff, right? Like That's building this virtual world is essential to being able to function, yes. And also being able to get out of it and deconstruct it is very important. How to stop this construction thing. And the, the teaching was given often enough that they can say that suffering and this word world were interchangeable. So sometimes they would say, you have to come to the end of suffering. Sometimes they'd say, you have to come to the end of the world. So this world that we build with our mind, the suffering world, is our construction. So to see that and understand that with no blame, when you see it as it is, Somehow you're free of it. I don't know, you know, the ignorant part of it. Like when it comes into awareness and you understand how it's built, then you're free. So the many times when the Buddha was visited by the low self-esteem demon and stuff, he would say, you know, oh Buddha, you you shouldn't teach, no one's going to understand it. Or you've taught a lot already, you should just die now, or stuff like that. Um, He would always say, I just see you, I see who you are, I know you. And that was enough to neutralize it. I don't, I don't have to believe it in the same way. So when I first arrived here, um, I'm in room 204 at the top of the stairs, and I've normally stayed in the other room 203, so I was used to one room and not to the other room. So I'm going in there and putting around my stuff and everything, and I try to get into the bathroom, and the door is locked. And I'm like, oh, boy. And the, there's a bathroom between the two rooms, and there's a system of little deadbolts, so that you can lock someone in or out. And whenever I've taught with someone else, we've always agreed, like, you know, you use it and then you unlock it and stuff like that. So I felt kind of irritated, like whoever was there the last time locked me out. And so I went around through 203 and I started in, I tried to unlock it and it wouldn't unlock. So it was stuck, so I came down and I got somebody and they came up and they went to the side that I had first been trying to get in on and they went and they opened it and I'm like, wait a minute. How did you do that? I was trying to do that? No, I had been turning it the wrong way, and i I thought i under had understood the whole thing about how the doors worked. I felt so embarrassed, like there was this feeling of like, I thought I understood this, like I'm so dumb, I'm just dumb, you know um and the mind got into this thing first, like some bad person out there, mindless, selfish didn't care about me, didn't realize that someone was going to really, you know, need to get in the bathroom and lock that poor person out, you know, and, you know, this, like, patheticness. And then after that, a kind of, like, humiliation of, like, I'm kind of a tomboy and I can fix stuff and hammer nails and fix computers. And now, you know, it's just one person goes, click, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was watching all this happen in my mind, like, in the space of the mind, like, the whole mind, like, going through this big thing that was completely unreal and I couldn't even laugh at myself at the end (laughs) you know I was like oh god and then it sort of went away you know then after like a little while it sort of I was possessed by all these things and I saw like all these like labels and people that I'd been creating in my imagination or there can be like really beautiful things that we construct or positive feeling things not humiliating ones like on the airplane the co-pilot gets on and he's really handsome and I think he is really handsome and then I start thinking I wonder, you know, I heard that he lives in Tennessee so I imagine this like beautiful wife and beautiful children coming across the lawn to (laughs) greet him when he comes home like some kind of a soap ad (laughs) like that and then I think well I wonder if that's true or maybe he has drug use problems you know, or something like what is it like to live this fast life as a pilot who's like all around the world. <laughs> it's, like, it's just from one glimpse, pleasant feeling, and then the like the mind starts working. It's very funny to just see like all that stuff that happens that we make happen. And when you can see it just moving through the mind as it is, it's kind of very interesting in itself to see this happen. Like you don't have to actually get rid of it. It becomes an object of interest arising and passing away like a sort of like a magic show magic display if you're not completely stuck in it the awareness is a freeing thing a very amusing thing so this is from um, John Giorno a gay poet from New York a friend of Andy Warhol's and an AIDS activist Um, a little you know out there so I want to give my thanks this is called the last poem I want to give my thanks to everyone for everything And as a token of my appreciation, I want to offer back to you all my good and bad habits as magnificent priceless jewels, wish-fulfilling gems satisfying your every need and want. Thank you, thank you, thank you. May all the chocolate I ever ate come rushing through your bloodstream, make you feel happy. I give enormous thanks to all my lovers, beautiful men with brilliant minds and great artists. May they come here now and make love to you, may they hold you in their arms if you're attracted to any of them. May they come back from the dead and do whatever is your pleasure. Huge hugs, too, to all the friends who betrayed me. Big kisses to all the loves that failed. I'm delighted that your vacuum cleaner is sucking everything into your dirt bags. You're none, other, <laughs> you're none other, other than a reflection of my own mind. And America, thanks for the neglect. I did it all without you. Let us celebrate that you and I never really existed. Thanks for introducing me to the face of my naked mind. Thanks for nothing. (laughs) So in a sense, the world out there comes to an end when you understand the world in in here. Um, That is a way of finding the end of the world. So there's a tendency um, how the construction happens, and in the tenderness of the Buddha, he helps us see where the buildup initiates from an experience, pleasant or unpleasant. If we see it as it is, then it's not complicated. If we give permission for something to be pleasant and you don't say, I have to keep this sense of ease for long, or when something is unpleasant and you say, "Like okay, so this is unpleasant, and you are able to just be with it as it is, just give permission for the difficulty with the mind that comes close and says, it's like this right now, this is what it feels like right now. There's a compassionate quality in that, and consciousness itself, uh, the sort of feature of its accuracy comes forward, sort of a compassionate accuracy of saying, like, all right, well, this is is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm going through, can be okay. But if not, then something difficult can come up, like the idea, like, my throat is a little bit dry, it's unpleasant, maybe I'm getting a sore throat, maybe I'm going to be sick, then from here on out, I'm really you know, going to be sick for the rest of the retreat. What's going to happen to my next Dharma talk? Uh-oh. All from one like slightly dry feeling in the throat, Un- unpleasant feeling, not seen clearly. Then there's a reaction. Don't like it. What's going to happen? Where is it going to go? All of that. Now, to some degree, this has value, the ability for us to predict and sort of visualize things. It's helped us uh, stay alive, for sure. But also, it becomes a place where... Instead of just feeling one unpleasant thing in my throat in the moment, I'm already being sick and incapacitated for weeks and spreading contagion through the... You know, and contagion has already spread. It's caught me here. Everyone's going to be ill. You know, It's, it's not good. So without judging those feelings or thoughts, just beautiful and terrible things, not to do anything to them, not to be dismayed by them, not to resist them or encourage them, but just allow this, thing, you know, first the unpleasant experience, that's the simplest or pleasant or neutral experience, just to be that, like right in the moment. Or if the thoughts and reactivity have begun to proliferate, see them like clouds and just observe them as they are. See that they're happening in your mind, that they're not out in the world And it's possible to not be disturbed, to have a sense of real inner nonviolence and interest and amusement even with what goes on inside. Over time, there's a kind of maturity that comes to the being as a result of observing in this impartial, dispassionate way and start to see that it's not personal. Um, Maybe if we hold certain prejudices it's important to admit them before you can really get out of them like i don't you know like i'm not prejudiced so i can't work on this or those kinds of things to say like well the way i grew up and stuff i was trained in some you know distorted ways of seeing life that can happen the mind absorbs impressions but it can also change we can be retrained different ways so there's so many suffering causing beliefs that we might hold like it's not alright right to be afraid. It's not alright right to feel helpless. My experience is inadequate. I will never get it. Um, women are one way. Men are another way. It's always like this for me. That kind of thing. I'm bad. That's one. All of this is happening in our mind and uh, in a certain way not true. So as we come close in this way to seeing the construction, we can start to see the awareness a little more clearly like this being really close in and with this amount of kind of clear seeing happening, we can start to see that which allows us to know anything and everything, which is part of our nature and it's transparent, doesn't really make a comment, it just allows all of this to be known to us. And the reason why we like, or one of the reasons why we like teaching this on the retreat is because as it becomes more accessible to recognize the pure awareness of what's going on is a place of being able to find peace because of the silence and no comment aspect of the awareness that's allowing all this crazy, hairy, noisy stuff to arise and move through it's actually the experience or being in the experience that allows us to see the awareness clearly. So if we've been thinking like we have to grasp at seeing the awareness, the best place to do it is to get right in the experience and live in the experience and know that you're living it vividly. And that's the awareness that you need to have, just knowing that it's happening. So it's kind of the kamikaze approach of diving in like to do an exercise about um, for you about the fact of being conscious um, so if you would look at the Buddha statue there and you all know that you can see it right you're seeing it right so you can either sort of look at the statue or know that you're seeing it is that true most of the time we're kind of immersed in the object but you can sort of rest there with seeing the object, and also know that you're able to be conscious of it. You're also able to know, through your awareness, what would be the meaning of the statue, you know, who it represents, like the, some, have some perception of understanding that this is a Buddhist statue. You can see the color of it, you can see whether it's shiny. And although you may know the meaning of it, you may, some of you may have pondered, what is that thing sticking out of his head? at the top what does that mean <laughs> that was one of my concerns for many years <laughs> <laughs> also do you like this or do you like this guy Do this this representation does that speak to you deeply or does it not you know like what is do you feel like someone wants you to like it like this is you should like this thing or not <laughs> it should mean something to you so do you You feel any kind of pressure by the place where it's placed and stuff like that. So what's your attitude to it? And this liking or disliking, is it happening in your mind or is it in the thing? The likableness or the unlikableness of this thing. See, Most of the time we think it's kind of about the the thing out there. We're not really seeing either the details of how we're relating to it. um, And we're not seeing that that we're conscious of it. So I'd like you all to really kind of accept that consciousness is, is a fact. It's a fact of our existence. It's quite simple in a sense. It's almost so simple that we overlook it. But very useful for us to understand this. You know, what is the subject, the actual subject of our experience? Rather than thinking that it's I or me, that consciousness is kind of the experiencer here and that it's knowing of everything that you know, everything that you perceive or think, or all the formations that go through your head. Even the sense of I, if you look, the sense of being a self, is somehow being known and held by that. Like, who are your thoughts actually talking to? You ever wondered? <laughs> Who's listening to all that? Who or what is listening to all that stuff? who or what can uh, is hearing the words that i'm saying now like where is that understanding or what is that what's that all about so hoping to encourage you to turn and look in there and imagine if this statue were to suddenly move like the surprise that you would all feel like where that would be felt also <laughs> <laughs> Or if you came here in the morning and it had disappeared, all the thoughts that would proliferate from that, all the emotions and all the speculations and conjectures that would occur, how would those be in your awareness? Would you get like really involved in thinking, like it must be, like someone must have stolen it, or they're playing a trick on us, or where was it, or remembering it, or you know maybe it never was really there. Like when my car was stolen, I went to the parking place and I was like, I wonder if I parked somewhere else. Did I even (laughs) drive here? Where is it? You know, you get kind of rocked and confused. All of that is happening like as a conscious experience. So that quiet or transparency becomes accessible directly from within the experience. So you can't have it any other way. It's sort of one of the deep realities and to sustain whatever kind of openness to it that you can whether it's kind of the kamikaze immersion approach or whether it's actually looking a little bit around the edge of what you're knowing and trying to see the glint of that conscious quality whether you're able to actually be mindful on a repeated basis through the day of the fact of being aware That's something that we're going to be moving toward. Please look at the awareness and please notice and let it register and explore the mystery of it. It's kind of like the light that comes through the TV screen while we're looking at all the images that are on the television or the film. You know, the light in the cinema screen that allows us to see all the stuff that's going on. look at that and notice that. Don't necessarily try to split it off from the object because consciousness is often consciousness of something. It can know itself, can be consciousness of itself, and you don't especially need to add a lot of extra operations for it to know. It just naturally knows already, like by its own nature, which is part of kind of escaping from the sense of I that um, Guy was talking about, you can't control it or stop it, but that's part of understanding the non-self nature of it and part of rejoicing that you don't need to make it happen. Jorge Luis Borges writes, I observe the ambitious and I understand them. Their day is as greedy as a lariat in the air. Their night is a rest from the rags within steel, quick to attack. They speak of humanity. My humanity is the feeling that we're all voices of the same poverty. They speak of homeland. My homeland is the rhythm of the guitar. The willow groves visible prayer as evening falls. Time is living me, more silent than my shadow. I pass through the covetous multitude. They are indispensable and singular and worthy of tomorrow. My name is someone and everyone. I walk slowly like someone who comes from so far away. He never expects to arrive. So that's not expecting to arrive is a little bit like what happened to Rohitasa. He died on the way almost by expecting to arrive. So in this stream of consciousness that is our life, that starts to be tangible to us as we practice, as we look for it. It's sort of like when you know, people talk about hunting for mushrooms and getting the mushroom eyes, like you don't see them until suddenly you start see them, seeing them and they're everywhere. Same with this. If you start to f- have a sense of it, a felt sense can come through the body or the visual field or hearing... Whatever that is for you, let yourself know the fact of being conscious. So every moment until the last moment of this life is going to be kind of like this one where there's an experience and there's consciousness. So how will it be if you never actually have to arrive? You just be, be through it. I'll close with a story from a uh, autobiographical memoir by Jayad Coffin. It's called a, it, the book is called A Chant to Soothe Wild Elephants, and it's about a young half Thai, half American um, man who goes to Thailand to practice in a monastery. And he's had these kind of he got really unhappy, and he went away from the monastery for a while, and then he came back, and he's talking to his teacher, who's called the Luang Pha. That's the Thai word. The Long Pa smiled at me. He seemed very calm. Where do you think the Buddha is? I looked for an answer in the spaces between the trees and in the distant valley. It began to rain in heavy, cumbersome drops that looked like snow. A light wind came up, too, pushing at the trunks of several bamboo trees and making a hollow clicking sound. The Buddha's everywhere, I said. Pa studied me for a moment and slowly began to shake his head. The Buddha's not in those places. I nodded. Do you understand that you do not know where the Buddha is? He persisted. I shook my head and said, yes, I did understand. The Luangpa said, are you sure? Yes, I said. He looked at me again and then behind me into the forest and then over his shoulder into the mouth of the cave. He shook his head as if the most simple thing he'd always known had suddenly confused him. The Buddha's in the heart, he said. I nodded. Do you believe it? I nodded again. Then why did you leave the forest temple to find the Buddha somewhere else? One of those nice Asian scoldings that we get. Like, why did you do that? I shrugged. I couldn't speak or think and my robes felt heavy. The Buddha's in your heart. He's in your mind. He's in the heart that's always mine, a jai. The long paw's face softened and became more gentle and sympathetic. I held the phrase in my mind until it made sense mine, a jai, not sure heart. The long paw pointed to his heart mine, a jai, do you understand? Unsure. I nodded my head. Tell him this, he told my friend. He hasn't understood anything, said the long paw. The long paw rose, and as he passed me, he touched. My shoulder with his finger. That's the Buddha, he said, to have a heart that is uncertain. I watched as a long paw passed through the tree line on a narrow trail and then vanished into the forest. That was the last time I saw him. So thank you in your uncertain hearts. Be quiet for a minute.